observe has often occurred to me. Um, you dedicate a portion of your life and voluntarily lay aside your own, your control. And provisionally, everyone that enters the service provisionally lays their life down. They don't know where they're going to be assigned. They don't know what will happen. They don't know what might break out. And everyone who serves has the potential to be in harm's way and lose their life. So it's not a small thing. That's why they have provisionally put their life on hold and possibly laid it down, which is why we owe them such a deep debt. I never, never take that lightly. And we owe them, we owe them care through their entire life. And I'm not going to veer off into whatever, but it's in many cases shameful um, how little our government often shows to them for what's owed to them. So we thank each of you here. And like the video said, thank you seems awfully weak. But we thank you. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, it is right and good to be eternally grateful for those who have served in a way that has protected us, protected our rights, protected our security and our freedoms. And Lord, we know in the vast majority of our cases here today across the country, so many owe so much to so few. It's a small percentage that put their lives on the line to guarantee all the freedoms that we enjoy. And so, Lord, we, we want to thank you for those that have served. We're grateful for them. And we pray that our, our thanks and a thankful attitude would always be extended to every one of them. Thank you for these that are a part of our congregation. We're grateful for them. We commit them unto you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before you return to your seats, if you would just turn around to the congregation for a moment while we thank them for their service. <clears throat> yes. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> there is 
a psalm, several verses from which I want to read. You don't necessarily have to turn to it. <clears throat> it's Psalm 135. <clears throat> and there are just two verses that I want to read. Five and six. For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. That phrase we want to remember. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas, and in all deep places. Now, <clears throat> while the word isn't mentioned in these two verses, this is clearly referring, and it's one of, I, could, I think we could say thousands of occasions in the Bible <clears throat> where the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is assumed, referenced, Proclaimed that God is sovereign. Now in God's sovereignty, I feel that he put this thought on my heart. And why in his sovereignty he ever did that, I don't know. Because the subject of God's sovereignty is a massive subject. I think that there among Christians is a lot of misunderstanding, um, poor information on what the sovereignty of God means. Theologically, there are different streams of thinking regarding the sovereignty of God. Some of them <clears throat> are really not correct. We need to understand the sovereignty of God. So, I want to do I'll do my best <clears throat> to try to condense a subject this complex. Hopefully that we can understand it. <clears throat> now there are several kind of introductory thoughts that I want to mention <clears throat> here at the beginning. <clears throat> there are two aspects to look at in the sovereignty of God. One is His right to rule. Second is His exercise of His sovereignty. How does He carry out being sovereign. First, briefly, again, is his right. God has the absolute right. No outside forces affect him. He has the absolute right to rule. The absolute right to rule is based really on at least three things. <clears throat> One, monotheism means he's the only God there is. There isn't any other God. There are thousands of figments of men's twisted 
darkened imaginations that are worshipped, but they're, they're nothing. All through the Old Testament, you, you see, especially older versions, you'll see the word vanity. All the idols of the nations, it says, are vanity. Well, it means they're meaningless. They don't even exist. Whole systems to worship them, priests to lead in the worship, prayers to them, rituals, and so It's all nothing. It doesn't exist. The Old Testament repeatedly says about idols, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have mouths, but they can't speak. And they must be picked up and carried because they can't move. They're vanity. They're meaningless. There's only one God. Obviously, then, he has the right to rule, secondly, because of his creation. He created everything. I can't count the number of times that God says, I own everything. He told the Israelites they could sell property and own property, and, but fi- every 50 years it res- resorted to its, its original owner, and then they started the process over again. It was both a check on the greed and the tyranny that come out of, can come out of capitalism. But one of the reasons God said you can't permanently sell it and own it because I own it. He said the land's mine. So basically I'll, I'll let you rent it, lease it, whatever else, but you can't permanently sell it and, or permanently own it because I own it. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. He told Job, he said, everything under heaven is mine. So he has, through creation, utter right to rule. Third, <clears throat> he pictures himself everywhere as a father. As a father, he therefore rules over his children always with a fatherly care and love and kindness and concern. So his sovereignty rests on he's the only God there is. He made everything and owns everything. And he has, he has fathered us. And therefore, he assumes the responsibility to guide our lives as we live before him. Now, <clears throat> we can say that there are, there's an absolute right to rule. God is sovereign. And it means <clears throat> there is no outside power that can limit his sovereignty. No outside power that can limit his sovereign, his sovereignty. He says, I act, and who will reverse it? I do as I please, as we read here. 
But are there any limits to it, to his sovereignty? Yes. We have to know what they are. First of all, he's limited by his own holiness. God will never exercise his sovereignty in any way that isn't righteous, fair, good, just, for our best, leads away from sin, calls us always to holiness. Second, a limitation is his love. God, now uh, listen to me here, God never acts out of hatred. He does act out of anger, but even then, the backing of that, behind that, is holy love. Even when he judges, even when he brings havoc, it is out of love, love for righteousness and goodness and holiness. And when that is threatened by sin, he will deal with it. And when he judges, even seemingly harshly, he's also protecting righteous. He's protecting the righteous. He delivers the righteous out of trouble. Especially where the righteous and the cause of the gospel and the cause of truth is threatened. God intervenes to stop the threat. Just as we intervene, if we see a loved one being attacked, um, even in our culture, we, we speak of good Samaritans, God intervenes even sometimes with destruction out of a desire to protect. Now, there's a third limit. This one's a serious one. God never does anything not in keeping with His holiness. Never does anything not in keeping with His overarching love. Third, are there limits? Further limits? Yes. The major one is not limitation of God by some power outside of himself. There is no power outside of him. There is self-limitation. God, well I'll get to this in a second. God gave humanity freedom to reject him. When God made a being with the power to choose, the power to reject him was included in that. The power to rebel against him was included in that. To make moral choices which end up being eternal regarding our destiny. God gave us that power. He then, 
he then sovereignly curtailed his own sovereignty in the matter of whether you and I, as free moral agents, would love, obey, and trust him, or rebel against him. He gives us that power. Now, just a thought quickly. We have the power to resist God, to rebel against God. But we don't have the right. We never have the right to rebel against our Maker. But we do have the power. And if we exercise that power to rebel against Him, He restricts Himself from coercing my will to do good. He won't do it. He can thwart some things people plan, wicked people. And even if they're thwarted, and they are unable to carry out their wicked design. It doesn't count as obedience. Because had they gotten their way, they would, have, they would have rebelled. But he doesn't coerce their heart. He will not make me, coerce me, compel me to love him. To obey him. To trust him. To walk with him. Won't do it. He, because He created us with a free will. It's part of the image and likeness of God in us. And, by the way, in the fall, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they lost the moral likeness to God. They lost their holiness, their love, their goodness, the moral imprint of God's image on their heart. They lost that. We lost it. We're all born inclined the opposite direction. But what we didn't lose were the faculties God has that he gave to us. Feeling, reason, will. We retain a will even though we've fallen. Now, <clears throat> How are we then not in bondage to sin because the Bible says we are? How can we choose the good? One word, two words, one doctrine. Prevenient grace. Or the grace that leads us. Or the grace that goes before conversion. It is universal Every human being that's born into this world has, by God's wonderful grace, restored to them enough freedom of their will not to refrain from sinning, not to make themselves good, but we have enough freedom to respond to the tugging the drawing, the wooing of the Holy Spirit as the Father sent Him into the world to draw us to Christ. Jesus said, no one can come unto the Father but through Me. And then He said, no one can come unto Me except He be drawn. 
there's universal first, first chapter, the Gospel of John. Jesus is the light that lights every man coming into the world. Everyone has the dim, maybe, light of a conscience. There's a moral code that God has stamped on our hearts. And Paul said, even those who don't have the law, meaning don't have the Bible, have enough light out of, conscience, out of their conscience and creation that he says they are without excuse. If they are without excuse, where does that leave us? In the Western world, in America, probably we could still say it's iffy, but we could still say one of the most gospel-saturated country in the globe is America. We have enough light to save the world ten times over. What then will we answer at Judgment Day if the darkened soul in the jungle is without excuse because they didn't see God's hand in creation and didn't follow the impulses in their heart toward good. Now, that, the reason I hope I get to the end point here, the reason the sovereignty of God has to be understood in the light of Him walling off our free will it, not, not, I'm saying nothing against what God's done, but it has really turned this into a complex mess. God won't make someone love him. So what does he do? He talks to them. He sent the word of God into the world. We have the Bible. He called preachers to preach. He sprinkles those who do love Him and walk with Him throughout the population, at work, wherever else. He has witnesses for Him everywhere. But He won't make somebody be good. He won't force them to be good. And, in many cases, there are some of these mysterious exceptions, but in many cases, He doesn't always thwart the wicked. Now, I will include myself in what I know all of you do. Lord, why in the world don't you do something? Whatever something is. We look at the world just today. We look at the crumbling, utterly crumbling moral foundation of our country. We look at the just the chaotic godlessness in our world today. And you look at absolute just 
beasts in human flesh and the things they'll do to each other. Just utter savage godlessness. And our response often as Christians is, and I think, <clears throat> I really like the Old Testament. There's lots of, and the Lord smote him. But if you add it all up, it's a tiny minority. God doesn't make a practice of just going around killing people right and left. And we sometimes then think, why aren't you doing something, Lord? Why don't you stop them? Why don't you strike them dead? If they're that bad, if you know they're not going to straighten up, eliminate them. God, he can't. Because he'd be going against his own will that he give us a will. And here's the quandary, if, if, if God can be in a quandary, he's in one. Okay. Now, he's not chewing his fingernails, he's not trying to figure out what in the world to do, and he's not asking any of us that I'm aware of for advice. Okay. God has to, he looks at the wicked, and the wicked, you know, God uses often a phrase. The wickedness, he says, of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, the cry of their wickedness has come up before me. And he, he says, the blood, he said, of Abel to Cain cries to me from the ground. So God, seeing absolutely everything, knows a sparrow when it falls to the ground. He sees all of it. And it cries to his sense of holy, righteous judgment. But he tells us, he does tell us, I know you may think my delay in judgment is a failure on my part. You may be frustrated with it. Don't get too smart with me, is mingled into all that, because he's sovereign. But he says, here's God's quandary. He sees what the wicked do, but he died for them. And he wants to save them. I have no pleasure that the wicked die, God said, but rather that he would turn and live. And he said, I delay my return to earth to end all things because I'm not willing that any perish. So God has within himself if, the, if God can have this, he has conflicting. There's anger. He says, I'm angry with the wicked every day. I'm angry with the wicked every day. And he said, I have 
I have an arrow on my bow and I have the bow pulled back. Meaning, I've got the crosshairs on you. I am angry with the wicked every day. And he says, if he won't turn, I will sharpen my sword. But he delays it within himself because he wants to save them. Now meanwhile, how does he balance? The wicked also have influence. They spread infection. They trouble culture. They lead maybe some believers astray. Or they poison the minds of people that haven't sought God yet against seeking Him. The wicked have real impact. So God sees that. The clock is ticking. The infection is spreading. But he waits. Meanwhile, he has, on the other hand, the righteous crying out to him, who are his beloved, loves us with all of his heart. Meanwhile, we're praying to him, Lord, please, at least put up a speed bump to these people. Slow them down some way. Do something. He's got that in his ear. And he sees the damage and sometimes the despair and the discouragement that seeps into the hearts of his own people because wickedness abounds. Jesus said during the end days, he said, because wickedness abounds, the love of many will grow cold. People will backslide. Do you see the balance God has to deal with? He wants to save the lost, obviously preserve those who love him, but he delays. In the course of all of that, he uses his sovereign delay to teach us lessons, to drive us closer to him, to trust him. Now, what do I mean by trust Him? This little psalm, this verse, we two verses, has a strange, almost everywhere in the scripture, you see three things. God made heaven, earth, the sea, and everything in it. Heaven, earth, the sea, everything in it. I don't know, I may be wrong, I don't know of any verse that includes this odd little phrase. Heaven, earth, sea, and all the deep places. All the deep places. What does that mean? It means the whole invisible world. The spiritual world. And the, the things invisible to us. Things we can't understand. They're invisible to us even intellectually. I can't understand it. I don't know why God allows some things. Why does he let, why, here's an illustration from scripture. 
Herod the king cut James' head off. He was head of the church then. And so it so cheered the Jews in Jerusalem and Herod that he figured, I'm not done yet. I'm going to hack Peter's head off. Arrests him, throws him in jail. Plans to bring him out and behead him too. God sends an angel. The chains, he was sleeping between soldiers. The chains fell off. The cell door opened. The door of the whole prison opened. He walked out into the street. The doors of the city opened of their own. And he goes through the streets and goes to the house of Mark and the mother of Mark, who were disciples. They're all praying like mad. Man, Lord, James, you didn't spare. Please spare Peter. He's knocking at the door, and they go to the door, and they look at him and says, well, this can't be. Well, they're all praying that it would be. <laughs> would you like to be Mrs. James? How would Mrs. James and their children think? Man, alive. Lord, in the height of his ministry, our husband, father... Is gone. You, you didn't spare him. You spared Peter. What's up? Those are deep places. Those are things we will never know till judgment day. But I also think when we get to heaven, we probably won't ask about it. We're out of here. That's in the past, and James is there. But there are questions unavoidable questions why this why that the mystery of God's providence what do we do with that we just have to trust him safest place we can be I don't know Lord I don't know but I know you're wise you're infinitely wise infinitely good infinitely loving infinitely powerful You've permitted this for some reason. I may know yet, Jesus told the disciples the night he washed their feet. They were saying, what are you doing? He said, what I'm doing now you don't know. But you will know later. Sometimes we'll know later in this life. Much we won't know until we get to heaven. There's where there's a great curtain we have to draw of just trust. And it's a deep place. I can't see it. I can't grasp. I don't know why. I don't know. But I trust God anyway. Now, we have to dismiss. Let's see here. I don't think I got to any of my points yet. <clears throat> That's why this is a tough subject. Um, but what I want us to understand is the sovereignty of God is always wise. It's always right. Don't pester God. We can't pester him about what are you doing? What are you doing? He knows what he's doing. And further than that, because God has given us, and I've got to say this, 
Because God has carved out an area that he says, I won't compel you. You have a free will. You can rebel. You can love me. It's up to you. I'll influence you. I'll call you. I'll draw you. I'll convict you. But I won't make you. What does all that bring about? There are times in God's sovereignty when his will is not carried out. The idea that, well, everything happens. God made it happen. No, he didn't. He didn't ever make sin happen. Ever. So, a home that blows up with an unfaithful spouse or whatever and grieves the kids and tears everything up, well, God must have had a plan. No, He didn't. He doesn't sponsor that. Ever. We have to remember we're, we're in a fallen world with people with a free will. Free to rebel. God's dealing with it. He gives us the grace to deal with it. Now, I've got to quit. Maybe I'll work on this for next week to finish it. There's way more to say. Um, but at any rate, you may pray that God sovereignly doesn't have, have me go back to such a dry subject. But at any rate, let's bow our heads. Dan, if you'll come and dismiss us with prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning with humble hearts. Um, as our pastor just said, Lord, this is the deep end of the pool when we get to things like this. But we need to know them, and I'm grateful for a pastor who will teach them to us. And give us that assurance of a couple of things this morning that I can walk out of here with it. I'm hoping we'll help others as well as just you love us. And all the things that we experience on this side of heaven, help us to remember that. And help us to remember, Lord, you just didn't tell us that you loved us. You demonstrated it through the cross and the empty tomb. So when we don't know what's going on around us, help us to always go back to what we do know. That you're good. Intimately and ultimately, you are good, and you have good for us. Might not work out the way we want it to sometimes, Lord, but ultimately it will. When we stand before you as believers because we've endured and we have received the crown of life, because we have endured, but we don't endure in our own strength, Lord. We endure by your grace. So help us to live about your enabling grace with your mercy and always remember this, Lord. Always help us to remember, no matter what happens to us today, we don't know a lot of things that are going to take place, but we know who we follow. And you're good, and you love us. And sometimes, Lord, that just has to be enough. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.